Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. World's fairs hosted in American cities, like those in New York in 1939 and 1964, are remembered as odes to progress. The U.S. showcased its prowess on the world stage, and exhibitions awed visitors with the latest technological marvels. But America hasn't hosted a World's Fair in nearly 40 years. In this episode, Charles Pappas explores the impacts the fairs once had, how they've changed since the days of sunny optimism, and whether the United States could again host a World's Fair in the near future. Charles is a senior writer at Exhibitor Magazine, where he covers trade shows and World's Fairs, and he's also the author of Flying Cars, Zombie Dogs, and Robot Overlords, How World's Fairs and Trade Expos Change the World. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure. If I Google World's Fair, there'll be like a little question box that, that pops up. And the first question that, that gets asked is, are there still World's Fairs? Uh, right? There are. They're still a thing. Well, besides the question, you'll probably see a picture of your grandmother, because most people sort of assume that this is something old people used to do. But a lot of the problem is that the access of World's Fairs has moved from America and London and Paris over to what was, if you will, the third world, to Shanghai, to Kazakhstan, and now to Dubai. It's really an exercise in soft power for those countries and all the people who exhibit there. But ever since the debacle of the World's Fair in 1984 in New Orleans, we lost sight of them and we sort of assumed that nobody does them anymore. And if they did, what would be the point? I think to the extent that maybe younger people are aware of, of World's Fairs, maybe they're, they're, um, they're fans of the Simpsons cartoon because there's a famous episode uh, which makes fun of the, I think it was at the 82, maybe Knoxville World's Fair, yes. which shows it, you know, just, you know, like a, a ghost town, you know, makes a big, <laughs> makes a big joke of it. And then you mentioned the, uh, the 84 uh, New Orleans World's Fair. So were those the last big World's Fairs in the United States? Those were the last gasp. 82 in Knoxville, you're right. It was immortalized by the Simpsons and it is a wonderful episode, but a little, a little unfair in how it's posited. Because for one thing, we introduced touchscreens there. That was America's and the world's first glimpse. They were called AccuTouch. That was their first glimpse of what computing would bring you. New Orleans, a couple of years later, had the dubious distinction of going broke before the fair ended. And that really kind of crystallized the idea that fairs just can't be run anymore, that there's no attraction to them, that there's nothing new they can show the way they used to. But as we've seen, though, in the last few years, that's been turned upside down, especially by Shanghai and now Dubai, where in a, in a real way, they're bringing the future to the world. I want to, and I, I want to talk sort of why the U.S. seemed to, you know, in a substantial way, got out of the World's Fair business, why it's coming back. Well, let's just uh, take a, a step back with how did they begin? What were the, I mean, there've always been sort of, I guess, you know, markets and exhibitions and showing their wares, but when did 
the modern, what we would think of as a modern World's Fair begin? The modern one began, well, let's blame it on the French, because in 1851, the first real World's Fair took place, the great exhibition of industry of the works of all nations in London. But the reason it came about was in 1844, seven years before, there was a Paris Industrial Fair where they were showing the works of the nation of France. So two British people, Matthew Wyatt and Henry Cole, got the idea that Britain could do this and Britain could launch itself on the world stage even more, but it would open itself up to competition. So they created a vast structure called the Crystal Palace, which was like 1,851 feet long, 408 feet wide, nine stories tall. And they invited 14,000 exhibitors, 6,500 of which were from other countries. It created the modern idea of the World's Fair, not just as a place to show products, but as a place to present the future. And not coincidentally, to exercise soft power in nation building. And ever since then, it's segued into Paris, into Vienna, into the United States. And now, as I've said before, it's occurring in other parts of the world that want to launch themselves on the world stage and to establish themselves through this exhibition of power, ideas, and to communicate with the world what they're all about. I would imagine with the, uh, the Crystal Palace exhibition, one, if you were a, just a, a farmer, a rural person in England, you must have really felt like you were taking a big step into the future at that point. Well, when you look at buildings, for instance, in Dubai, like the Burj Khalifa, you're seeing something that's pretty extravagant and kind of awesome. So imagine, as you just said, that person in 1851, who may never have traveled more than a few miles outside of their birthplace, they're seeing a palace of glass and steel rods, unlike anything ever done before, because the architect Joseph Paxton designed it biomorphically, that is based on nature. So he took an Amazonian water lily, named of course in honor of Queen Victoria, and then designed the building around that. So you're walking up to a glass palace, it's so tall, it's so big that an urban legend springs up immediately about it, that they had to bring in an army of hawks to take out all the sparrows that were congregating inside and picking up the food bits. Now, it's not true, but it should have been. But the real fact here is that's how it impressed itself on the consciousness of Britain that there was this extravagant, almost science fiction idea of what architecture could be, of what Britain could be at that time. And accordingly, it drew the world's attention. So roughly 6 million people came in a time when the population of England itself was about 10 million. So it gives you an idea of how many people saw it. And then think what that does. That's a congregation of people, a concentration of the populace that can create the tipping point for ideas for ideologies and spread throughout the world faster now than then, but fast nonetheless. That's what I find so interesting is that you had this exhibition, you know, during the industrial revolution, maybe even the second industrial revolution that was really beginning to accelerate, that was moving beyond just um, better weaving technology. And this was also, this was sort of sending a message, I would think that, that this, this revolution is going to be wild. It's going to create something amazing that for most of humanity, you know, one day was sort of like the next. 
But if you go to that exhibition, you would think, wow, uh, tomorrow may not be like today. It could be very, very different. You hit on a key point here. The idea that everybody could have the benefit of this because of industrialization, the ability to produce a lot of products very fast and ship them all over the world. So the next World's Fair, 1855 in Paris, almost everything you could see had a price tag on it, meaning you could go up and just buy it. And how amazing would that be in an era when so many things were bespoke, when so many things relied on craftspeople to make them individually, which, which has a beauty of its own, obviously. But there's also a beauty in millions being able to join in and enjoy products that uplift their lives and make their labor you know, a little easier. So then along with that, you start getting ideas introduced as well as products. In fact, they started to launch the concept of kindergarten, of buying on credit at the World's Fairs in 1855. You start getting this kind of mass consumption of products and ideas that people can now use to make their lives better. And that, again, sort of acts as a fuel to really spur even more countries to want to do these expos to show, yeah, we can join in. We're the same. And we can kind of laugh at their naivete, if you will, but it's you know better to compete on that stage than to use guns to do it. And in that sense, Europe was expanding, Europe was growing, not without pains, obviously, but this allowed international competition to take place on a peaceful stage. And that really was something, especially if you look at Europe's history. When did the United States get involved and get interested in World's Fairs? Actually, they did one in 1853, about two years after. They copied the Crystal Palace, even called it the Crystal Palace, and then they went to town with it. It was a bit of a, I wouldn't say call it a failure, but it wasn't quite as extravagant as the 1851, but it did have something kind of fascinating. At one point, P.T. Barnum produced part of it, which again, can tell you a little bit about it, but they also introduced the safety elevator something I find really fascinating. Now, imagine, this is 1853. So this guy, Elisha Otis, he hoists himself on a safety elevator, standing on top of it above the crowd. There's a rope holding it. Now, we've had elevators for centuries, especially since at least the Roman Colosseum, but they have a tendency to fall. You know, whether it's a chain or a rope, they have a tendency to break. People fall, they're injured, they die. So above hundreds and hundreds of spectators, Otis cuts the rope. People gasp, people cry out because this is like me walking out of a window, but not falling. But his safety latch held. And in that moment, he solidified his business. Now consider the power of this. 170 years later, I know there's a lot of other elevator makers in the world, but I can only think of Otis's name. I know there's others, but I can't think of them. Otis though, I know. And they're worldwide today. And then later on, they introduced the escalator at the 1900 exposition in Paris. So it's, a, it's an ability to change the world, to impact lives and to, if you will, in a, in a more business-like sense, they set brands up for a kind of decades, even centuries long domination. And that's part of the power of expos. What was the first big World Fair that was a major uh, event? Would it be the 1893 one in Chicago? Or was it, uh, was it there was there an earlier one? 
and by that I mean where people from all over would would would, would travel to it, not just in you know in the, in in the region, but that it was something that people everywhere in the country were kind of aware of, and might that might be the big thing they do that year. I would say 1889 Paris, because you have Thomas Edison introducing the phonograph. You have the Eiffel Tower being built, and now we're starting the very barest beginnings of electrifying the world. So at one point you have this new source of energy coming, you know, to the foreground. So there's a wonderful painting by Charles Curran called Evening Illuminations at the Paris Exposition. They had covered the Eiffel Tower with 5,000 light bulbs and at night they would set it up. It would just glow in the dark. And there's a picture in this painting of a woman climbing on someone's shoulders just to get a look at it, just to gawk at it. Imagine that would have been like in a world which to that point had basically been lit by fire. This was new, this was revolutionizing the world. Then on top of that, you have this, what was a monstrosity, the Eiffel Tower, which people denigrated as a tragic stovepipe. The Paris intelligentsia absolutely hated it. 300 of them wrote a letter condemning it. Uh, the writer Guy de Maupassant actually used to eat his lunch underneath the tower because he said that way, I don't ever have to look at it when I'm looking out at Paris. They hated it. And now, of course, what? Everyone loves it. The Eiffel Tower is now the most valuable monument brand in the world. It's estimated to have a worth around $500 billion. That's a billion with a B. This is what the fair creates, this mass meeting of minds that can sometimes have an effect that ripples down through centuries. So at the same fair, when Edison introduced the phonograph, he put 50 of them out. And he very wisely had people record things like the French national anthem. And so the French could go up and listen to this and he would record the voices of famous opera singers, people that others might know by name, but they would never obviously have heard them because recorded music doesn't exist. Imagine what that would be like to hear a disembodied voice, something that never existed before. So he, by the way, he also went out and recorded the voice of the German military strategist Helmuth von Moltke, the only person born in the 18th century whose voice has actually been recorded. It was amazing. It was the future being brought to you. It was the wonders of science kind of overriding the fears of superstition. And in that sense, I think they brought us science, they brought us technology, they brought us the future. Speaking of introducing technologies, the incubator. What if you Indeed, <laughs> indeed. Could, that's an, I think, why don't you could briefly tell the story of the incubator, because that one's really interesting. It is, it is an odd one, too. At that time, 1904, the infant mortality rate in America was roughly 165 births per thousand. That is huge. That actually is more than certain third world countries today, which gives you an idea of how dire a situation it was. Now, incubators had been around for a few years, but it's a new technology. People don't trust it. How do you make them trust it? You, you find a way to demonstrate to many at a time that it's benevolent. So at the fair, they took a room, they put medical staff in there and a row of incubators. And then they went to orphanages and they got preemie babies 
from orphanages and place them in the incubators. Now, obviously that would be a bit touchy to do today, but the point is this, the 20 million people who attended the fair, they saw this and they saw that it was a helpful, benevolent technology and virtually overnight public opinion changes. Again, a tipping point of millions being able to see something at one time and then the ripple effect of them spreading the news afterwards. Maybe the, the, uh, to the extent that people today uh, are aware of the history of the World's Fair, they might know, especially if they're from Chicago, which I'm from, I, I'm aware of the 1893 uh, World's Fairs, but maybe, they're the, maybe the uh, 1939 uh, World's Fair, New York City, a, uh, maybe one of the last big international events uh, before World War II, and if you were going to write a history of the 20th century, you'd probably, you'd probably mention that World's Fair. It kind of starts, the 20th century for America sort of starts with that World's Fair. We used it for a number of purposes, one of which uh, Roosevelt used it to extend the good neighbor policy with South America. It was a bit of a la launching pad for that, or rather to extend its influence. But I think the most important part of that fair was Futurama. General Motors created the world's largest diorama, 36,000 square feet. Now imagine they built 2 million trees, Jim, of 18 different species, 50,000 automobiles, small size, like Hot Wheel size, 10,000 of which could work, thousands of skyscrapers. And then you rode around it, over it, 552 people at a time, on a carousel that took about 17 and a half to 18 minutes to complete the circuit. And what you saw was a moving city, not the rural America that had been beaten down by the Dust Bowl, by the depression, but construction by a gleaming city where many of the car cars might be semi-automated. And this is the world you were going to have by 1960, it said, and pretty much they, they hit that expectation. You came out of there with techno-optimism. You thought technology can help meet the future. It can bring us into the future. And for that alone, I think it was a real triumph of the spirit of planning. And in fact, the designer of that, Norman Bel Geddes, Roosevelt called him to Washington to advise on a Federal Highway Act that was passed in 1944 it had enormous influence on legislation itself, which I think is another remarkable effect of World's Fairs, what they can do to help the world. And there's another point I wanna make about this, which is kind of subtle, but when you saw this diorama and you saw these things moving and you saw the construction that would stand in place for construction that would go on all over America, remember the depression was marked by one thing, silence. Construction had fallen to almost no levels in many cities. There was a silence that hit America in those years. Now there's the implication of all this energy, of all this activity that the future, and of course GM, were going to bring us. It was subtle, but it was actually accurate and it worked. And I think they deserve a tip of the hat for being able to communicate that idea and if you will, sell that idea to Americans. And then 25 years uh, later, we had Futurama 2, another, uh, another <laughs> World's Fair uh, in New York City. But that, and that Futurama, uh, which I've been watching, you know, some videos of it online, 
a more a more expansive vision of the future. It was really almost more holistic because it showed uh, humanity, probably led by America, on the moon, uh, uh, under you know under the ocean, uh, cityscapes perhaps even inspired by the uh, uh, the Jetsons. So again, a World's Fair presenting the future as a place you'd probably want to live. You're right. Moon bases, undersea hotels, which, by the way, we have in Dubai. They would clear the Amazon. Well, maybe we should have you know, scaled that one back a bit. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, they, they almost oh, sextupled the size of the New York one in 39 for this one. It, it, it was massive, even bigger than before. But again, GM, the sponsor for this one as well, was selling a future of autonomous cars. And then also there you had the IBM Pavilion, which I think matches in optimism and foresight what would happen with computers. So you'd walk into this very odd looking building that was round. And with the words IBM emblazoned in three dimensions, 3000 times around the top of it, because what was it supposed to look like? The typing element and the Selectric IBM typewriter that was a computer for its era. The mouth opened up like a, like a giant maw in a beast. 500 people at a time went in. You were lifted as high as nine stories up and then this Charles Eames designed extravaganza starts to take place. 14 projectors hitting nine polygon shaped screens, talking about how computers will affect your life. Now, computers are five ton monstrosities then. Maybe they have five megs of memory, which your iPhone would die if it had that little at this point. But it shows everything from housewives to football coaches, showing how they devise what they do, a recipe or a game plan using the same logic computers do so that they're not frightening anymore. And while these things were really gendered you know, to the stereotypes of the era, it was understandable. I was there, I saw it. And I remember being wowed by it, being just mesmerized. And then you're lowered out after 15 minutes and you go out and you see a puppet show using Holmes and Watson, using 20 questions, deductive logic, to solve a case the way a computer would. Then you can walk up and get, write a date out. And a computer would read it, handwriting recognition, pretty cool, huh? Pretty science fiction. And then you'd write out a date, for example, and it would give you the headlines for that date from a New York Times database. But I left it with one impression and one impression only that IBM was computers the way Google today is search. They're interchangeable. And that set in motion IBM's rise at that period, which, and it's still been dominant despite some ups and downs in the last few decades. But it's also important because not only were they selling us on computers, rather the idea of computers, but at that time we had just come out of a recession in the 50s, which was sometimes referred to as the automation recession. So people still had a fear of automation and what it would do to our jobs, especially when you consider these are not things we have in our homes yet. They're things that these lab guys in white coats attend to like, like priests, some sort of malevolent God. But now we had something better. We had a future where it was going to help us. And argue, if you will, on the truth or accuracy of that, it was the ability of IBM to use exhibiting at this mass event, because roughly 50 million people showed, to sell itself in that manner and to, to convey a sense of the future in that style. What happened? Is, is it 
that techno optimism sort of disappeared and maybe we weren't as receptive to those ideas or did the fairs themselves change and maybe they weren't as optimistic about the future maybe they were they did they still present kind of that joyous what you know let's take one giant leap kind of kind of attitude it's a perfect storm of all of those and what i mean by that is at that time the environmental movement was starting up in which in many cases technology could be rightly seemed to produce more problems than it solves so by 1974 you have the first real ecologically minded expo in Spokane, where the US pavilion took a 17,000 square foot space in front of it, to talk about the average waste a family of four leaves. GM took the occasion not for a Futurama, but to show a hybrid car of the future, the XP833. So you're now scaling down, you're now looking at, we are in a problematic period. It was about products, then about progress, and then, if you will, about panic. So the expos are moving in a sense to approach that topic in that way, to say we are now in a problematic period and we need to solve it, which in a sense can kind of fuel the idea that technology is the problem and that there's not much fun in seeing it anymore. Also, as you're right, the advent of screens. Now, television was introduced to the public really in 1939 in New York. So we can see things on screen. With the internet age, even easier to see things on screen. So the point of expos is that they've got to segue now from something that may just be a visual delight to experimenting with them, to experimenting and demonstrating those, just like Otis did with an elevator. And I believe that the solution to this is to have more live demonstrations of technologies that you and I could try out for real you can't do that online. And it stands a catastrophic chance of failure, just like Otis in his elevator. Because if it could collapse, if it can fail, then you know this demonstration is legit and it's worth its while. It's worth you looking at and trying this technology. That I think is the one hurdle expos are still trying to get over, to move from just screens to actually demonstrating these really cool things that are out there. You throw all that together, plus the economic difficulties of, for instance, New Orleans. But there, I'd, I'd, even, I'd even throw in a caveat. Granted, New Orleans went broke before the fair ended. That's, that's a debacle. That's pretty bad. But here's the thing. The areas that they renovated for the fair have brought in roughly $81.7 billion in revenue since that fair in 1984. That's not bad. So these fairs have to be looked at as, do they lose money immediately? Maybe. And what do they do in the long term? Because after all, Shanghai in 2010 spent at least $50 billion on infrastructure. But at least two think tanks estimate that they may get anywhere from a 5 to 1 to 10 to 1 return on that investment long term. That's huge, that's worth doing. So it's not like say the Olympics where you kind of throw a lot of money, then it's done. A city that plans this well actually ends up with a long-term benefit because of the infrastructure they'll build to bring in more business. Another example, 74, again, the Spokane Expo, they lost about $700,000 
immediately with the expo, but it's estimated that they brought in 700 million in revenue because of increased tourism and also some of the infrastructure building. So these things can not only just be cool for the area and fun to attend, they can also build out their areas. Similarly, Dubai thinks they'll get at probably a three to one return. They're spending about 9 billion. They probably will get back, let's say 27 to 33 billion for, for what they've invested in. That's not a bad return. Around, was it the late 90s? The U.S. sort of got out of the financing part of it. I, I noticed that uh, there was a, a a piece on Reuters saying that the uh, that the U.S. might get back into it and allow, and allow the government to start spending money to participate in world fairs uh, again. So, is America going to get back in that business? And are we going to see not just world fairs in the United States, but ones which have very impressive uh, exhibits? Because because some of our exhibits without government funding have not been too impressive, if I understand that correctly. Well, you, you, you've you hit on a touchy point with, I think, government and fair people in the US. But you're right. We got out of the business more or less formally in the year 2000 after admittedly some economic hanky-panky, if you will, at a couple of the expos with the US pavilions. So part of the federal government said, no, we don't want to deal with this anymore. But under the Trump administration, we started to get back into it again in a bipartisan way, which I think is, is quite admirable. We're trying again to get one here for the year 2027. Minneapolis, in fact, is trying to get it. And if they do, the theme would be based on health. And part of what they want to do, which I think would be a really cool idea, is to have a lot of technologies you will try out. That would be a smaller one. The big ones take place by design in every five-year period. So in other words, 2010, 15, 20, and 25 will be in Osaka. Others haven't bid yet for the 2031. But I wouldn't sell the smaller ones short because if they focus well enough, the idea of experiencing all these things can be set in stone and you can really leave it with much of the same experience. My guest today has been Charles Pappas. Charles, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. 